they think it's all about the tech and yeah. they think that their stuff is so unique or what they end up doing is throw a bunch of buzzword bingo stuff at it that doesn't matter or it's just everyone else does the same stuff it's like a me too thing so they just they don't see what's unique about them and then they feel that their stuff is just the best stuff out there and chances are it's not even though they spent all this time and effort to build it it's really people don't care about the technology they care about the job the jobs to be done that framework like what does it do and how does it help me more importantly what makes it unique and then what's the real pain you solve that 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 is super critical and then the other thing that, that happens more more often than not is that they talk too much <laughs> they don't they don't say their hook they don't say their little snippet and just wait have someone on the other side of the conversation say tell me more that's the ultimate how do you get your startup story in techcrunch well hello dreamers and action takers welcome to another episode of the want money got money podcast i'm your host sam kamani and my guest today for this episode is jari bolander jari is going to share with us how to get your story in media he also shares about his latest book the entrepreneur ethos so Let's get into it. So, welcome Jerry, welcome to the podcast, welcome to the show. It's great to have you here. I've been following you online and I see that you've written six different books and a lot of them on entrepreneurship and startups. You have a podcast on um entrepreneurship, the entrepreneurship ethos podcast and you have a PR agency. What are you most excited about these days? <laughs> what am I most excited about? Yeah. Oh wow, there's a lot there's a lot there. I'm actually writing a memoir about yeah. my uh late wife Jane and I's relationship, so I'm looking forward to getting that done. So I'm pretty excited to get that out in the world. Business-wise, there's just a lot of opportunities that I'm mm-hmm. looking at because of COVID. Yeah. For whatever reason the things the world's accelerating in certain ways. I'm sure a lot of people have, have seen this where certain industries are just on hyper growth track yes. some are um, going the opposite way for various reasons but there's just a lot of opportunity and I'm, i'm like you right there's i have so many things going on it's hard to pick just one but yes. i think getting the memoir done by the end of the year is a goal and also there's some business business stuff related to temporary shelters for the homeless that i'm trying to pull together with some friends and um, which is really important because especially where i'm from here in california and san francisco mm-hmm. bay area there's a big problem with the homeless population not having a place to live so we'll, we'll see how that goes yeah that's very noble of you that's really great to hear so will you start a social enterprise for that or will you just do it i think so i think that's what we're going to end up doing i'm working with a bunch of other people and we're trying to pull together a bunch of different disparate things that that are like technology and the shelters themselves and the systems and the man it's a, actually a really complicated process and and, yes. and actually something that I never really knew how one how complicated regulatory wise to just scaling is really tough you can imagine oh you got to how is 60,000 people how do you do it that's not an easy yeah. task that's the ultimate in in scaling so mm-hmm. 
Yeah, it'll probably be a for benefit would be my guess. The people involved mm-hmm. are pretty passionate about helping people. So yeah, we'll see. Fingers crossed, like anything, <laughs> until we get it off the ground. It's oh, just a great. glimmer in our eye, glimmer in our eye. Yep. T- tell me a bit about your agency, your PR business. What do you guys do there and what type of people, entrepreneurs, businesses do you help? Yeah, sure. So I run a firm called JSY PR and Marketing. It was my late wife, Jane's firm. She passed away three and a half years ago from leukemia. And when she got sick, I took it over because that was our only source of income. So by literal happenstance, I became this PR maven, as they say. We focus on professional athletes, nonprofits, and startups, and we help them tell better stories. One of the things I've found being an an entrepreneur, startup person, technical, an operator, I've done six startups, that it's usually the company with the best story wins, not really the best technology or the best product. And a lot of technical folk have a hard time telling their story. They feel for various reasons that the product should be the focus of the story as opposed Mm -hmm. to their journey and who they are and why they're doing what they're doing. So we help them figure that out. And actually my late wife, Jane wrote a book, which actually published for her after she passed away called seven PR secrets, all founders should know, which you can get yeah. on Amazon. Yeah. And that's a framework that we use among other things, but yeah, so far over the last four, four and a half years, I've been doing this, been helping a lot of companies, startups and nonprofits tell their story. Yes. And that's especially important now because there's a lot of noise out there with what's going on and got to get the story straight or yes. <laughs> I will put the link to the awesome. to the book the 7 PR secrets in the description wherever this goes. Can you tell me a bit about so what are these 7 secrets 7 PR yeah. secrets? <laughs> yes, yes. So there there's a bunch of them but it all centers around why particularly startups should invest in PR before they actually hire a PR agency. So a lot of it has to do with how to set up in order to actually do good PR. And and eventually when you get big enough, actually hire a firm. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of it revolves around just the basics of timing of a story interacting with the press because a lot of times people, if you're a tech startup founder, you want to get in tech crunch. You just can't get into tech crunch one day. You got to work at it. When to have a, a press kit, how to, how to really craft the narrative so that your pitch to a reporter or even an investor is tight and conveys, <clears throat> excuse me, what you guys are about or what your company's about very rapidly. I think that's the biggest thing that I've found is that not a lot of people can tell a clear, concise, and compelling narrative about what they do. Yes. Yep. That is, yep. That is very true. Just thinking about, do you have any practical examples of some, a startup or an entrepreneur that you helped refine their story and how you did it and what was the result? Yeah. Yeah. So I, uh, that's actually a really great question. Yeah. There's a company called Sutro. It's mysutro.com. It is a floating water testing robot. You put in your swimming pool, if you have a swimming pool, 
And we started with them a couple of years ago, trying to figure out what their story was. They had a traditional pool and spa industry narrative, which I'll just call pool party. You can imagine you're at a pool, drinking Bud Light, eating hamburgers, fancy, I'm not fancy, bright colored pastel shirts, the whole kind of party atmosphere. But their their product was a little bit different. It's a little, it's a little more high end. It's a little more refined. And so they wanted to change that story. They wanted to project more of a premium or what we termed posh party. And so we would, you know, we sat down and we talked about, okay, what is it about Sutro and what is it about this problem of testing your pool? Because the, basically the pool and spa industry revolves around testing water, right? If the water's yeah. bad, you're not going to go swimming, right? Yes. We also know that as most do-it-yourself pool owners, that is testing your water and treating it is not a very fun experience. We decided on the tagline, love your pool or spa again, which means that you now can really enjoy what you're doing. And then that actually morphed into, uh, as we did more and more study, it was the first one. The second one that we came up with, which is what we're using now is a perfect pool is a matter of pride. And that really captures why people want to use technology or want to use the product to make sure that their pool is ready for a swim so that when someone comes over, they're like, wow, great pool. That's that's yes. what, what they want. And if you can't have that, then, <laughs> you know, then what's this big, body of water in your backyard that's growing algae. <laughs> What's it there for? We also have done some stuff for nonprofits to kind of channel and focus their messaging as well. Nonprofits traditionally have a a harder time with, with mm-hmm. their messaging, especially small nonprofits. We did another one where it was about gathering, gathering things, gathering supplies, gathering medical supplies. Yes. So we called it gathering hope yes. because a lot of the medical supplies that this um, nonprofit distributed were to very poor countries and uh, yeah. that gave those countries hope. So, so yeah, it's a, uh, it's an interesting job. I never thought I'd ever do it. <laughs> to yeah, be yeah. Honest. <laughs> I'm uh, crazy. <laughs> Sometimes I can't even, I don't even know why, but anyway, yeah. you know, you have engineering and technical background and there are a lot of tech startups that are around say b2b sort of a saas product and how do you create a, a narrative or a story around it that is interesting and not boring <laughs> and not just data and analytics <laughs> yeah that's a harder that's harder because uh, a lot of the people that do b2b tech startups mm-hmm usually come from the B2B space. And most of the time, the company is trying to somehow arbitrage something to make it more efficient or make it more higher performance. It's it's typically save money or increase speed. It's better, faster, cheaper. And so that's more of a performance play. So a lot of times what, what I think about is what's the core value of your company? Is it performance? Is it status? Is it merriment? Is it your worldview changes because of knowledge. Is it equality? Is it safety, security? These are big kind of values that are important to understand. So most B2B SaaS companies are performance companies, which means 
they make stuff better, faster, cheaper. Yeah. And so when that's the case, it's like everyone's better, faster, cheaper. What makes you unique is really where I start. And I've always found that SaaS companies always have some uniqueness that they don't ever talk about. That is independent of the job or the job that they perform or the job that they improve. Yes. Um, that is super important. A great example is this client that I that I work with on and off. They're, they're actually friends of mine, and it's called Seaplane.ai. Seaplane. Yeah, yeah. And it's a tool for the orchestration of IoT devices for industrial controls. Talk about super boring, <laughs> but super important because traditionally what happens is let's say you've got all these devices in a factory. Let's say you've got a thousand devices. Okay. You have to set these things up traditionally back you know, in manufacturing. They don't have like cloud servers you can plug stuff into and all the sort of magically spin up a virtual machine, like all the stuff that we take for granted in the SaaS world or the traditional consumer slash commercial SaaS. These industrial guys have no clue how to do this. What they normally would do is get an intern to like manually go through and assign IP addresses, right? Yeah. Cplane.ai does this thing called orchestration where they actually take the technology that's been around for spinning up servers and managing like Kubernetes and all that sort of stuff yes. where like you can spin stuff up, spin stuff down and load balancing. And then they applied that to this industrial environment. And so their story is just the orchestration of industrial, you know, IOT. We make that doable or manageable yeah. or even possible because <laughs> you just imagine you have 3000 internet devices and you set them all up by hand. Like that's just ridiculous. That's painful. <laughs> yeah. So they're like working through their story. And, and, and even though it is, I think, I don't think it's boring. I wouldn't use the, the term boring because there's some people in this industry that they love what they do. And yes. I'm glad they do it because some of these industrial plants, if they didn't do it, it'd be pretty dangerous. But mm-hmm. traditionally, it's not a sexy B2B SaaS company selling tools with the fancy splash screens. This yeah. is just like doing the hard work. They've had to talk about their journey, their product, their why, because they're taking technology from a different industry and applying it to this other industry, which it's it's like speaking greek got to yes. educate them yeah now that that makes a lot of sense what is one common mistake do you see a lot of tech founders they make when approaching say i don't know editors journalists uh, media agencies they think it's all about the tech and yeah. they think that their stuff is so unique or what they end up doing is throw a bunch of buzzword bingo stuff at it. That's doesn't matter. Or it's just everyone else does the same stuff. It's like a me too thing. Yes. Me, me too. In terms of me too technology, not me too. In Absolutely. terms of the, not the movement. woman's movement for equality. <laughs> Sorry. I should probably stop using that term. <laughs> or get in some trouble. So they just, they don't see what's unique about them. And then they feel that, their stuff is just the best stuff out there. And chances are it's not, 
even though they spent all this time and effort to build it. It's really people don't care about the technology. They care about the job, the jobs to be done, mm-hmm. that framework. Like, what does it do and how does it help me? More importantly, what makes it unique? And then what's the real pain you solve? That 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 is super critical. And then the other thing that, that happens more, more often than not is that they talk too much. <laughs> they don't, they don't say their hook. They don't say their little snippet and just wait, have someone on the other side of the conversation yes. say, tell me more. That's the ultimate. And, and I think that's partly because as a technical person, technical founder, you're not used to that kind of interaction. You're used to X, Y, Z, we do this. Technically it's this, it's very logical. Whereas pitching a reporter sales marketing is not really logic. It's more emotion-based. Yeah. But that's what I learned back in the days with sales, that most of the sales is emotional purchase, whether it's a house or a car or, and then once they emotionally people have made the decision, then they use data to justify that their own decision to themselves. (laughs) And that's what kind of goes on. So you need to pull on the emotional strings if you really want to good, be better at sales. And I mean, relate in an emotional way, not just with data. How about outreach? Do you have any advice for an outreach? How should someone say they, earlier you were mentioning about everyone wants to get their story on TechCrunch. What should be the step-by-step way um, they should go about in, in doing that? Yeah, the, you have to have a what's called a cadence, PR cadence, which means that you have to develop stories and develop relationships over three, four, five months before yes. you can get into what would be a tier one uh, publication like TechCrunch. Yeah. And then a lot of people get frustrated with that process because it's like, it's literally like a B2B sales process where yes. you got a prospect, you got to give, give them information. You got to get to know them. Reporters are busy people. Mm-hmm. They're also extremely uh, interested in, in stories that are good stories that are unique. And also since they are busy and don't have a lot of time, they want whatever they're going to do to be easy for them. So putting the systems in place, like a press kit, like feeding them stories, like following them on Twitter, like being useful to them builds this rapport. It's just like any relationship with a vendor or a customer, you need to develop it over time. And you just can't be a, I need me, 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 me. You have to give, you have to give. And I always say to go after tier three, tier two, tier three, publications, ones in your niche, go for some local publications, just anything you can do to get your name in the press. Yes. Um, because that builds up this cadence. It builds up this body of work because what will happen is if, if they sort start getting interested in you, the first thing they're going to do is Google your do name. What everyone else does. They're going to Google you, right? Yes. <laughs> they're going to look at your webpage. They're going to see who's covered you before. Yes. So that's why it's important to have not only relationship, follow them, but have a blog, have an opinion, have a voice, put, put your, put yourself out there. You just can't, if you're going to do a, you know, product launch in three weeks and then you're like, Hey, I need PR. You're not going to happen. Yeah. It just takes longer than that. And I think that's what frustrates a lot of entrepreneurs that that's not like an ad or a Facebook post or whatever. You can just pay money to get it out there. 
maybe in some cases you can, but you know, in you most gotta, cases, it doesn't work like that. <laughs> no, got to work at it. Have you got any examples of of a PR campaign that went much better than you expected and got much bigger coverage than you expected? Yeah, we worked with this uh, nonprofit called No Traffic Ahead, and it was a nonprofit that was trying to put forth the idea of human trafficking in the world. And they had a campaign, they hired us to do a campaign, help out with a campaign during the Super Bowl 50 here in San Francisco. And that, that of course, is human trafficking is a pretty heavy subject and a pretty heavy topic. And they had a lot of really good media around it, but it just, it was such a well-run campaign on all ends. And there was a huge amount of people that were involved. I think it was all Bay Area law enforcement. It was this big big thing that we just got a lot of great coverage that exceeded everyone's expectations, which is good because part of what you want media to do is expose or rather amplify your story and your message. Yeah. And for them, it just showed not only that the human trafficking still exists, but that it's in places that you may not necessarily understand. So that part of their education campaign was to have people know about that. So yeah, in that sense, it was very successful. What do you think was the reason that everyone picked up their story among all the other noise? I think it was because of the Super Bowl. Yeah. It was because there was a large and broad coalition of people pushing the same narrative. Yeah. And when you have, so when you have the spotlight, and then there's stories around a big event. And yeah. this is what startups can also take advantage of, or at least shoehorn into. Yes. If people are talking about it and you have something to say and it's something relevant, it'll get picked up. Yeah. So they had a very clear, concise, and compelling message about why human trafficking is bad, what they're doing about it, why you should care. And there was this nice buildup of this whole thing. And because the Super Bowl was in town, everyone was talking about the Super Bowl. So it was good. It was, it was very well done on all fronts. We had a, we didn't have a huge role. Our role was to coordinate, but the people that developed what they were doing are just stellar. That's great. That's great to hear. Tell me a bit about your book, The Entrepreneur Ethos. Yeah. Entrepreneur Ethos, I wrote. It came out in 2017. It's my take on how to build a more ethical, inclusive, and resilient entrepreneur community. It came out of some discussions I had with my late wife, Jane, who was a woman minority entrepreneur. And the premise is that as entrepreneurs, we have a responsibility to build a better community because entrepreneurship is uh, one of those things that makes a difference in the world. And I chose ethos as opposed to ethics because ethos is the highest form. It's the what you aspire to as opposed to ethics, which is like the baseline. Oh, there's a certain ethical behavior. These are the rules, whereas the ethos yes. is the highest of the highest, at least in my opinion. And so I interviewed a bunch of entrepreneurs, about 40 to 50, and figured out the traits, values, and beliefs of the community 
and solidified this ethos, this kind of single page, 400 word ethos that I felt was a really good synthesis of what I heard, but also what I think our community, our entrepreneur community should aspire to simply because I feel in the 21st century that entrepreneur skills are those skills that everyone needs to have. Even if you're not going to be an entrepreneur, you got to learn yeah. how to pitch. You got to learn how to have an idea. You got to learn about rejection. And so the, the, the book just when, when it came out and what I'm doing with the podcast is having those same conversations. Like, what does it mean to be an entrepreneur? How do you handle the ups and downs? How should we as a community make the world better? Because again, I feel it's not too big a stretch that entrepreneurs are what make the world better. They also can make the world a lot worse, but generally we, we make the world better. And so how do we include as many people as possible? Because there's one job on the planet that anyone can do. <laughs> it's be an entrepreneur. It didn't take much to be an entrepreneur. So what do you think differentiates good entrepreneur or great entrepreneurs from good entrepreneurs? Yeah. Yeah. I wish we all knew the, <laughs> the million dollar <laughs> question for that. I think it comes down to some of these traits, values, and beliefs and a lot of luck. Yeah. One of the things that I'm really passionate about is educating uh, young people about entrepreneurship, particularly those in inner cities or those that don't have access to the resources that, that, yeah. that someone like you and I do. And what I've found is that the education and opportunity that an, that an entrepreneur mindset can have can only be really fully utilized if that education and opportunity kind of coexist. Or if you have an opportunity and don't know what to do with it, okay, then you're out of luck. But if you've got the opportunity, I'm sorry, but if you've got the education and no opportunity, then you're just sitting around, oh, I know this, but there's no opportunity. So really it's an education and opportunity thing. And I really think it's a lot about just, they had an opportunity, they had the skills to take advantage of it or to opt, you know, to go after it. And they were lucky that the opportunity came their way because this doesn't take much digging and analysis to see how precarious some of these famous companies <laughs> were. Google, Facebook, Tesla, just name a company that, uh, that they get put on a pedestal and you dig into their, you dig into their history and they're like verge of bankruptcy, got shut down, pivoted, Twitter. All of them, like there's not one that hasn't had to, to pivot. I can't really think of a company that just had it easy out the gate. <laughs> it doesn't so exist. I think, yeah, I don't think it does. And so yeah. those entrepreneurs that have the skills to take advantage of the opportunity yes. when it comes their way and mixed with a little bit of luck. And luck is not like, oh, I'm luckier than you. Luck is I saw an opportunity and I had the wherewithal to take it. And it just so happens I'm creating this luck because I'm in the right place at the right time. I've been given the opportunity. And that's what I think if we want to build this more inclusive, resilient, and ethical community, we have to give everyone those opportunities and training yes. and that luck because 
There's a lot of problems to solve in the world. And those communities that are most hard hit by them, they need the resources and the opportunity to solve these problems because they're the best ones to solve them. Yeah. Talking about luck, what is your view on luck? Can you improve your luck? Yeah, you absolutely can. And how do you do it? Luck is all about, to use a baseball analogy, time at bat. <laughs> how many times you get up and swing? Yes. It's all about going after opportunities and just keeping at it. There's, I, If I was to look at all the things where I was so quote-unquote successful at, literally the serendipitous i'll give you the best example of this is when i met jane my late wife talk about opportunity luck and in like the right place at the right time i was on this campaign she's now the the, the mayor of san francisco london breed i was on her um, first campaign and she had this there was this like breakfast called the Alice B. Tolkis Democratic Party Breakfast. And it was always on Gay Pride in San Francisco. Yeah. And it's eight in the morning on a Sunday. And I, I didn't really want to go because <laughs> at the time I, I used to, I don't drink anymore, but I used to drink and I had, was having fun the night before. And I'm like, ah, oh, eight o'clock, well, I don't want to go downtown. But a couple of my friends, they said, no, nah, man, you got to go. You got to go. You promised or you'd go. And I said, okay, I'll go. So I go. I'm really not in a great mood, but I meet Jane and I meet Jane. And I'm like, at the time, I'm like, oh, I didn't, I just, oh, hey, you were on the same campaign. Great. The thing is I gave her my card and I, and I say, yeah, give me a call or text me or whatever, or send me an email. Next day she sends me an email and I'm like, oh yeah. Okay. And then we, because of that opportunity and because she followed up, because I went, then we started to get to know each other then we eventually got married. But that has happened constantly with different different clients, different, different, just putting yourself out there. So now, like she taught me, anytime I get a business card, anytime I get a contact, I follow up immediately. Hey, it was great yeah. to meet you. Let's get together. Like with you, when Brendan introduced yes. us, I'm like, oh man, I got it. Okay. Yeah. Going to talk to Sam. We're going to figure this out. Because I know based on experience and based on you know, a lot of success. Yes. It's these little things of the follow-up, the yeah. going to the event. Because I hated going to these events. I really don't like being in a big group of people, but I went and then I met my future wife there. My, my fiance now, <laughs> I literally picked up a phone call. I did, who is this? And I pick it up and it's her. And I didn't, I could have not picked up the phone. I could have been in my own little pity party, but I, when opportunity called <laughs> for the pun, I picked it up and yeah. yeah, maybe I don't get that one. Maybe I don't get the other one, but I think it's all about putting yourself out there. Yeah. Being useful. Like this podcast, doing a podcast has been another great thing. I meet so many great people. I met you. Who knows? Maybe one day we'll do something together, but it's literally because Brendan said you need, Hey, you need to talk to Sam. Yeah. I didn't know you from anyone like a week ago, right? I didn't even know him. He reached out to me on matchmaker.fm. I could have said, I could have ignored it. There was this other kid. He interviewed me. It was like his first podcast. He's in like Jordan. And I 
I can't remember his name, but I literally just responded to him. And he's, I sent out a hundred of these things and you're one of the responses. I was so happy. I'm like, yeah. I just responded, <laughs> but he put yeah. himself out there yes. now. And he's 16. He's just going to build and build. and build. I, I, His name escapes me now, but that's the kind of thing I'm talking about. If you put yourself out there yeah. more times at bat, learn the skills Build your skill stack, build your talent stack to take advantage of opportunities that come your way. You will have more, you will be lucky. You will get more and more luck because it's the person that goes in, it's the person that's in the arena that counts. That counts. That's, you can't, no one's going to knock on my door and say, Hey, Jari, I got a million dollar opportunity for you. I have to go find it, right? Yes. No one's going to say, No one's going to, I would never have been on your podcast unless I followed up. We had a phone call. Like I had to, we had to interact. And I think a lot of people don't do that. And, and sometimes it's because they don't know how, sometimes it's because they don't have access to people like you and I, Yes. or they're just not that they're a little afraid and a little scared because there's, you get a lot of rejection as an entrepreneur. There's so many times where people don't return your call. <laughs> people yes. don't, you know, give you like, like the email. You probably just happen to you. You're like email and then nothing happens. So yep. you just have to. As I have gotten busier, I understand because just over the multiple social medias and everything I do, it's every hour there is anywhere between three to 10 messages coming in through different platforms, through LinkedIn, Instagram, Twitter, five different email addresses, lots. And then I'm on lots of different entrepreneurship type platforms on Discord and Slack and Facebook groups and lots. So much is coming in all the time that it is just human to miss. And I'm not that big at all. I know people who have 100 times more audience following them and the the number of emails and messages they would be getting is insane. Yeah, explosive, yeah. So you have to, at one stage, I think Mark Cuban gets about 3,000 emails a day and most of them would be like just cold messages. So it is very hard. It's just that I already have now one community builder and another girl, like one in Russia and one in Argentina helping me sort out some of this stuff because it is just getting to a point (laughs) that you can only answer and reply to so many. And so that's why. So if anyone is doing that, don't be discouraged. It's not because they don't like you or is that you are any less. It's just the sheer noise in the environment and on social media that people just cannot reply to everyone. 100%. That, yeah, that's why I don't get bent out of shape if someone doesn't reply to me. But that's the other reason why it's important to follow up and yes. follow up in a very kind and considerate way. There's been so many times where someone sent me a pitch. I got distracted or busy. It was interesting, but it like literally like you went away and then they followed up and I'm like, oh yeah, sorry about that. Like exactly. I, it, it slipped through the cracks. So yes. yeah, you have to have determination. You have to have grit. You have to have hustle and you have to really cater the message that you're trying to do and your cold emails or whatever. This is what you learn when you pitch reporters. Yeah. You have to be super useful to the point, single question, single response, and make it easy for them to say yes. 
that's the other thing about like communications and having an opportunity or, or cold outreach or any of that sort of stuff. It's the respecting the other person's time on the other end, making the decision easy for them, but also right. Adding value. There's How so do you many do that for reporters. What... Yeah. So a lot of times, so all reporters, what they want is they want a great story that they don't have to work super hard at, especially if they're on deadline. So some of them that are like doing long form journalism, which doesn't happen much anymore, they may have a little more time. But if they're like covering a beat, they're constantly daily having to generate content. So for them, you want to have a very short pitch that is relevant to what they cover, that shows that you actually know what they cover. And, and if you can, not in a slimy way, give them a compliment on some story that you like. Yes. Make it easy for them to say yes by having one and only one question. Hey, would you like to cover this story? Question mark. That's it. You don't need to expand anymore. The least amount of words is the better. Is better. Two to three paragraphs at the most, because they're what they're going to do is they're going to, and and the subject line is really important too. So they're going to scan, and they're going to say, okay, tell me. They're like, literally yes, tell me more. And then that's the offer. That's the opportunity. That's the. Yes. Now you have a dialogue. Don't give some two-page massive pitch with attachments and this just awful stuff. They're just going to hit delete because it's too much work for them. Make the job they have to do easier. In some cases, some of them, we would write, we'd write the story for them or we'd write 90% of it and then they would tweak it with that they wanted because- yeah. Again, they're like all of us. They're busy. They've got deadlines. They got stuff yeah. to do. It doesn't mean that they're like, and they have to have be interested in what you're doing. And so that's really the critical factor. Understanding what they write about, being very kind and considerate with their time, yes. complimenting them, just like anyone, right? Complimenting them, giving them a single question to answer. Do you want to cover this? Yes or no? And then being very responsive. They have deadlines. Give them as much material as you can. Just make it easier for them. Just like everyone would want to make it easier. Yeah. That is excellent. I have just two more questions. And one of that is if you had unlimited time, resources, and money, what would you do or what would you work on? Wow. That's a great question. I want to teach people how to tell better stories. And I also want to help men with grief and loss. So probably as my life evolves into the twilight, (laughs) whatever you want to call it, I'll probably start moving more and more towards that. But the storytelling thing I think is really important. I would spend time teaching people what I know about storytelling, building tools, processes. And then part of that storytelling, I would try and help men learn how to grieve, give them support on their grief and loss, because I think a lot of men struggle with that and they feel really lonely. And I also think that would help the world if if men can learn to share their feelings. And it's not really that learn, they know how to do it. It's just, they're not given the opportunity. So as it's a man, okay. yeah. it's okay for me to get angry at loss, yeah. but I can't cry, normal human emotion. Yeah. As a woman, I can cry, but I can't get angry. <laughs> so yeah. eh, we're human. Seems yeah. like 
we should probably fix that. Yeah. I think that's what I would do. I think that's more of uh, a lot to do with culture and everything. Just globally, it is the same. It is the same, but globally it is that's just the culture we the cultural expectations I should say that create that. But yeah, it is a very sort of a thing that's needed. And that's why you see society is so high among men all around the world because it's just it's very hard to share emotions or anything because you are judged <laughs> a lot more or it feels like you are judged a lot more if you express your emotions freely so yeah i completely understand where you're coming from finally do you have a ask are you looking for customers team members anything I mean, I'm always looking to work on cool projects, uh, yeah. always looking to help people with stories. So if anyone needs any help telling their story and cl clearly love to talk, I would love everyone to buy the book, of course, listen to the podcast. But, but in all seriousness, I think the reason why I wrote the book, The Entrepreneur Ethos, was to really put forth what I feel we have to do. The 21st mm -hmm. century, it's a lot of change, a lot of turmoil. There's a lot of opportunity People are the, the way work's going to change, the way we interact with each other is going to change. And I think as entrepreneurs, we have to set the, we have to set the example, but also there's a lot of stuff to do and a lot of things mm -hmm. to solve and a lot of products to build and a lot of just goodness that I think we can do. And so for me, I just think entrepreneurship's the way to go. And I hope, you know, everyone at, at least looks at the ethos and tries to live by the ethos. And if they don't want to live by the ethos, have their own that's better than the ethos. It's like really important that we, as a community, come together worldwide because we've got a lot of problems to solve. That's great. Thank you, Jerry. Thank you so much for your time and wish you all the best with your journey and with helping people, entrepreneurs, founders, and startups tell their story. Thank you once again. I appreciate it. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Want Money, Got Money with Sam Kamani. Hope you enjoyed the show and got some valuable insights that would help you in your startup or your business. If you haven't already, please subscribe and rate this show on your favorite platform. It would be extremely helpful and I just cannot tell you how much I would appreciate that.